Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Jake Tauscher, investor at G2VP. I'm really excited for this episode because, unlike previous episodes, this one will be about opportunities in the climate space from the investor's seat. I mean, G2VP's tagline is quite literally, invests in exceptional companies applying emerging technologies to old industries in sustainable ways. Which makes Jake's perspective really interesting on our podcast. And so in the episode, we'll explore everything from the fundamentals underneath carbon offsets and the broader carbon offset market, to what carbon capture means and the promise of different technologies that are manifesting that potential different trends that he's keeping a tab on across the climate ecosystem, and other trends that he finds to be overhyped or overblown. And finally, some of the fascinating opportunities that get him and his firm really excited across the broader climate startup ecosystem. Guys, I'm so excited for y'all to listen to this interview. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Jake Tauscher, investor at G2VP. All right. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. So, Jake, let's start with some of the basics. You are an investor at G2. So give the listeners a little bit about what G2 is and how you ended up there. For sure. I'll give you uh, I'll give you my pitch. And the key with any VC pitch is it has to come off very nonchalant, like I don't say this 20 times a week. You can let me know, let me know how casual this is. But so first on, on G2 Venture Partners, we were founded three, almost four years ago at this point, early 2017. Our founding partner spun out of Kleiner Perkins, which is another you know, large VC here in the Bay, where they ran the Green Growth Fund. And so when they spun out, they spun out with essentially the same thesis, which is we invest in what we now call the digitization of industry. So basically, we invest in companies that are bringing emerging technology to what we now refer to as traditional industry. These are industries like agriculture, energy, manufacturing, logistics, these huge industries that make up a ton of spend and get comparatively less VC attention. So those are uh, the the types of things we invest in. We invest in, we say digitization of industry because a lot of it is software and digital technologies, but it doesn't have to be. We invest in, in hardware technology or a combination of hardware and software as well. And so we're investing behind what we think are, are some of the you know, biggest mega trends over the next five to 10 years. So that's the focus of our fund. And then how I ended up here. So my background is more on the industrial side of things. I'd say I'm a tech enthusiast, but my background is certainly in, in larger industrial companies, both consulting with them, working at large industrial companies. I spent time at the largest manufacturer of paper and plastic bags. In, in the United States, which it doesn't get much more traditional than that. I invested in large uh, industrial companies as a private equity investor, and now have made the jump to investing in tech that kind of sells to those companies, which is a really exciting place to be because, like I said, there's a lot of opportunity here, and, and we'll talk about all of that. So that, That's super, that's super interesting. interesting. I first got turned on to your work by way of a mutual friend, and after doing some stalking, I was really intrigued by some of the writing you were doing about your thinking, about the funds and firms thinking, and you've written a kind of a, a selection of pieces that cover very popular 
kind of buzzwordy topics in the broader climate community. But I think for the average Jill and Joe, <laughs> it's actually quite hard to understand, or most people don't understand the fundamentals of these concepts. And so one of the pieces that you wrote about is titled, We Should Be Buying More Carbon Offsets. So my question for you is, why did you write this piece? And for the reader that dives into it, what is your key takeaway from someone who reads it? For sure. And thanks for reading all the pieces. It's funny, I never really planned on, on being a blogger. This was not my thing. But so much of my job, the fun part of my job, honestly, is just learning about stuff, right? There's all these buzzwords in the market, as you said. And it's not just hard to learn about what these things are for, for average folks. It's hard to learn about what they are for all of us because you 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 know hit the Google and you start trying to do some research and you you figure out that like it's the same kind of articles being requoted to each other. It's very hard to actually sometimes understand what's actually going on. Luckily in my job, I am am somewhat paid to to understand what's actually going on. So I have the time to to do it. And I just thought it was a it was a cool thing and and a good process for myself to to actually write things down because the first mm -hmm. thing you discover when you write things down is that you didn't actually know everything you uh, thought you did. Because once you have to put it out in public, all of a sudden, the statements you're making need to be a lot more vetted. So that's the fun part about blogging. But yeah, the carbon offsets piece in particular started with just a really simple insight. I, I was talking to a company that kind of had a marketplace for carbon offsets, trying to make it really easy for, for people to buy. And as someone who is interested in this market, but has never, I had never purchased carbon offsets except through multiple steps. I'd never purchased them directly. So I went to check out how expensive they were. And my thought was like, okay, the average person in the US has a, a carbon footprint of about 16 tons a year. As someone who travels and has a car that I drive to work and stuff, my footprint's probably more about 25 to 30 tons. But my thought was always, okay, like, how much would that be to offset? I had no idea. I thought maybe thousands of dollars to be completely carbon neutral. Turns out, Carbon offsets are shockingly cheap, and the market price in the voluntary carbon market, which is where you know I would buy my offsets, about three bucks a ton. So most Americans could offset their entire carbon footprint for fifty bucks a year, which is just shockingly cheap. And so my initial reaction was like, why isn't everybody doing that? Why isn't this bigger? Like I texted a few friends, were like, how much do you think it? Um, would cost to offset a cross-country flight. And I got answers from like 100 bucks or 75 bucks. Turns out mm -hmm. it's like a dollar. It's not expensive at all. And there's reasons for that. So the reasons for that are a fewfold. And this is what we go into in the piece. And the two biggest reasons are what I would say are low quality and low volume. <laughs> so neither good. Low quality just means there's been some, I'll say, scandals, but use that word very lightly, right? Because it's a carbon offset market. It's not probably big enough to have a mm -hmm. full scandal. But basically, people have sold offsets, like in this case, hey, I won't cut down my forest if you pay me. That's an offset, assuming you were planning on cutting down the forest. And, and then they cut it down anyway. And people have gone back and they bought an offset. And then all of a sudden, the forest isn't there anymore. So it, it's tough in this marketplace because it's a lot of people in developed countries buying projects in developing countries. And just managing that is it can be tough. And there's a lot of startups that are trying to help out here, things mm -hmm. like satellite mm -hmm. and verification and stuff. But the other part is low quantity. And I think this is really important because basically we just live in a carbon-filled world. There's carbon everywhere. And 
So is there enough volume for if everyone in the world suddenly decided to offset their carbon footprint, would they all be $3? Definitely not. We would run out of those. But the great thing would be if people bought it and we ran out of those, then all of a sudden there's more demand to to do stuff that's more expensive. And then you get into stuff that maybe costs 10 to $20 uh, a ton of carbon and kind of funding those projects can eventually, number one, bring those costs down. So those are cheaper. But number two, they fund these kind of more expensive, more durable uh, carbon projects. So that was why it's like, we should be buying more. I, the idea was just, number one, everyone should know this is way cheaper than you think. So check it out. You should be thinking about offsetting your carbon. And then number mm-hmm. two, the more people who do it, the more funding is going to flow to projects that are really useful. Yeah. So, so before we segue to another piece that you wrote, I want to double click into this broader notion of carbon offsets and then specifically why they aren't more popular. And just listening to what you briefed, one of the core problems is A, this misconception around pricing, right? There's already a small segment of people who are taking a liking to this type of activity or exercise. And then the kind of supplemental challenge is if you if you have this misconception about the price of offsetting your footprint, after you've learned about the broader notion of it, then you might think, ah, you can't justify the investment or the allocation of your dollar. So uh, if I just were to pass the torch back to you, what do you think are the maybe two or three core reasons why offsetting isn't just an everyday kind of routine activity that we all do? Yeah, it's a great question. It's honestly something I've, I've thought about a lot. I think there's a few reasons. The first is evidenced by the way you asked the question at the end. Why isn't it an everyday activity? And I would say right now, it's just not, it's not embedded in our daily lives. And there's reasons for that. But the number one is these are people buying portions of projects that are happening elsewhere, externally verified by someone. But we haven't taken the step to really embed it into things. And there's companies trying to do this now. Think of like when I go and shop on Amazon, as I go to check out, there's a little checkbox that says, would you like to offset the shipping on this? And I could just check it almost like you do with travel insurance or something like that and offset it right in a way that it was just completely embedded in my workflow. There's companies working on carbon neutral credit cards, right? Where every time you make a purchase, it just offsets it in the background. And I think there is an aspect of it that just making it that easy, because I do believe there's demand for these things. There's been survey data and such that shows, but there's also a barrier when you have to, number one, go out and calculate your own carbon footprint, which there's calculators that exist out there and stuff, but I don't know how connected people feel to that. It's It doesn't feel like this is really me. This is my impact when I'm looking at like average mm-hmm. data and stuff. So making it personal to people, and there's startups that are trying to to do that, helping you track your own carbon footprint, making it easy. And then, so I think those are the two big things. The other thing I'll say, there is a bit of negativity in the carbon offset market really around, is this the easy way out? So there's a sense in, in some of the very passionate areas of the green movement that, hey, this is an easy way out. We need to actually make lifestyle changes, not just pay our way out of this, which like, my, my point of view would be that basically like this is better than nothing, number one. Number two, in the entire history of this planet, we have never had a year, except maybe this year, that emissions have actually gone down. So the, this hard steps we need to take to reduce 
our carbon footprint as a globe are definitely important, but like we are we are just not making the progress we need to. So anything that helps, I think, in my opinion, is a good thing. It's like I don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good situation, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And then the the last thing I will say is the biggest purchasers of these things are corporations. They, they have the money. They often corporate greenwashing is a trend. And honestly, the corporate willingness to pay is just really low, sadly. I think we may have talked about this before just when we were chatting, but like Lyft is a great example, right? In 2018, they went carbon neutral. They They offset all of their emissions, which is which is awesome. They emit like 2.5 million tons a year, their car network, their transportation company. So what did that cost them to offset? Probably, I don't know, $15 million, something like that. And then this year they got rid of that, which basically they had a statement that said this was costing us millions of dollars. We're getting rid of it. It's number one, definitely. Mm -hmm. That was not a surprise. And then number two, they replaced it with basically a promise to be carbon neutral by 2030. And, And this is a trend that I'm seen a lot in the corporate world. I don't mean to single out Lyft because they are far from the only one, but (laughs) tangible action today has been replaced with vague promises tomorrow. And I think what brands have realized is they can get this halo, this green halo by saying, we have a plan to be carbon neutral by 2040, 2030, whatever it is. But what I would say to those brands is that's awesome, but you can also be carbon neutral today by buying some offsets. And then Mm -hmm. you reduce your offsets over time as you make changes and such. And I think it was Google. It might have been Microsoft. Some of these tech companies are are pretty good in this. Went back, I think it was Google, offset all of their emissions since 1970. So Mm -hmm. they calculated everything we've done and they just bought it. And they said, we're going to get rid of the sins of the past and we're going to buy our offsets. And I I think that's an awesome example that other companies should think about is these are not mutually exclusive things, right? Making steps to make your company more sustainable is not mutually exclusive to buying offsets today. And buying those offsets, as we talked about earlier, will fund improvements in projects that make offsets cheaper for all of us, make renewable technologies cheaper for all of us. That's probably a long answer, but that's my answer. I found one of the sound bites very compelling, a thousand percent. I'm actually going to use that last bit around making promises about tomorrow because it's absolutely true. What I will say and I want to piggyback of, off of this notion of corporate responsibility, intentionality versus 2030 goals. One of the problems that exists in the kind of corporate offset market today is trust. And I don't know if you saw the Bloomberg, I don't want to call it a hit piece, and none of the corporations have responded yet, and same with the nonprofit, but they just published this piece around Uh, Nature Conservancy, which is, I think, one of the – I think it is the largest offsetting nonprofit in the US. They almost had a billion dollars in revenue last year or this year. But Bloomberg just published this long piece that says these big corporations, JP Morgan, Disney, BlackRock, are touting their green projects as an important mechanism to slash their own carbon footprints. But (laughs) – I don't know if it was private investigators or some type of you know forensic analysis found that the trees were already in well-protected land. There's a lot of nuance in the kind of broader offset market around additionality and restoring versus protecting. But I'll send it to you if you haven't read it yet. But what I see coming down the pike, because offsets are such a new notion, there's very little... Like you just accept it at face value and you chuck it off as good. 
But I think if you look at all these certifications, organic, et cetera, after it becomes integrated into the mainstream, then uh, you start seeing this proliferation of auditing bodies and certification bodies that actually dig underneath the hood to say, hey, is what you're saying or touting legitimate to the extent that you're portraying it to the public? So. D- did you see this piece or am I just spewing uh, – is this for <laughs> no, new knowledge? I actually have not seen the piece. Uh, definitely send it to me. But you make a great point and I think it's really valid that it is hard to buy offsets today at potentially the scale that, that some of these folks would want to. And so my answer to that would be let's buy them at small scale and and then people will be willing to invest in larger scale. But the point of additionality is a real one, right? It's Additionality is really tough and – for people who don't know what additionality is, basically to generate an offset, right? My money has to generate something that would not have happened without my money. So great example is the forest, right? If you were never planning to cut down that forest, you can't sell it as an offset. But that does bring up some difficulties, right? Because if I have a forest, it's a lot of effort to, to cut down all those trees and try and market them. Lumber prices might not be great. Like I could just say, hey, I'm planning on cutting this down. Now who wants to stop me? And did I generate an offset? It's unclear. And to your point, there are certification bodies and stuff that are, are trying to help with this. There's also tech that's trying to help with this, whether it's from mm-hmm. satellite verification of the th- these things on the back end, that doesn't help with the initial decision, obviously. But it also gets to the point that outside of just forestry, there's a lot of other options for offsets that are seen as higher quality because number one, maybe the additionality is clearer, right? Because these are doing something, not do, you know, preventing something. And number two, they sequester the carbon for thousands of years versus a tree can get cut down at any point. And there are some Mm -hmm. corporates, Shopify and Stripe are two great examples, who have pretty forward thinking environmental teams that are investing in some of these higher priced, but higher quality offset options. So we can give people some credit as well. For sure. Yeah, actually, I, I, I pulled up the article just to make sure I fact check myself. This is what Bloomberg found, is that the Nature Conservancy recruits landowners and enrolls its own well-protected properties and carbon offset projects. And then the group then generates credits that give big companies an inexpensive way to claim large emissions reductions. And yeah, that's not great. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's sad if it's true, right? Because this is these are the sort of things that have been holding back this market. They're, this is not a one-time occurrence, these sort of stories have come out before. And it does, I think, give people pause. And it should, but it is sad in a way that this will dampen things for a bit. Mm-hmm. So let's segue off of that because, again, there hasn't been any response to that. We don't know how they'll respond, to what extent it's true. Um, but I'm just putting it out there. Just and I'll, I'll link it into the episode description so people can read it for themselves, make their own judgments. Jake, I want to double click into things that you're really excited about in the kind of broader offsetting opportunity. And I think that the kind of the best way to explore it is to highlight specifics, maybe two to three companies that you've become acquainted with that are pursuing either like carbon budgeting, carbon personal finance, offsetting in really interesting ways. For sure. And I'll highlight maybe um, three that are interesting. And I'll, you know, I'll highlight four maybe now that I think about it. So one is a, a portfolio uh, company of ours. It's not an offsetting company, but it, it is a, a digital utility. It's called Arcadia Power. Awesome company. Everyone should go check it out. 
And basically, their pitch is really simple. They will take over management of your energy bill, any energy bill. You just log in, give them your credentials. And then from now on, you log into Arcadia Power instead of name your energy company. And in return for a, a small fee, $5 a month, they will ensure all of your energy comes from clean power. They'll also do other stuff in the background and such, but that's the core of the value prop. So really awesome company. If you want to just ensure all of my power is coming from wind or solar, it's super easy to sign up and it just sits on top of your utility, makes everything super easy for you. And it's pretty cheap. So that's pretty cool. We love what they're doing and, and they have How some How do exciting- they make money? Uh, <laughs> it's a great question. They do it in a lot of ways. They they kind of broker stuff behind the scenes and all that that sort of stuff. Plus, you're paying them five dollars a month. It is slightly more expensive to to do this as because basically how they do it. Not to get into the the nitty gritty of this too much, but there's this thing called Rex. I think that stands for Renewable Energy Credits, but you can check me on that. But basically, what it means is if I have a wind farm, I generate Rex because. It's very hard to distinguish where your electricity comes from. Actually impossible, right? They're just electrons, whether they come from you know, coal or from wind. And so by the time they get to your house, they're all the same electrons. And so what RECs do is say, this is who gets to take credit for this renewable energy, basically certifying that y- you have the renewable energy. So I guess like an offset in a way. But the cool thing about RECs then is it, it's another good added value that renewable energy folks get for building renewable energy project, projects. So it incentivizes the building of these projects and you can take advantage of that and make sure all of your energy is clean. They also I do, love this. They also do community solar. It's really easy to use. Anyway, everyone should go check it out. Cool. So that's one and that's in our portfolio. Some of the other ones, these are companies I'm personally excited about. They're a little maybe early for us. One is called Patch, usepatch.com. We talked earlier about the ability to easily put offsetting into workflows. And Patch is what they're building is basically an API that anyone can use that plugs in, that it you know, connects to a marketplace of, of offsetting projects. So if you were, like we talked about earlier, a, a company that has an e-commerce platform, really easy, take the Patch API, plug it into your checkout workflow, and you can just offer your customers the chance to, to offset their, their shipments as an example. So I like how easy they're trying to make it I think that's a cool thing. There's others. It's not just Patch. They're the ones I'm, I'm probably most familiar with. Wait, quickly, Jake, I, I want to pause on Patch because this is in many ways connected to an idea my partner and I have been tinkering on. So I very much agree with the notion that offsetting only hits its full stride when it becomes tightly integrated with existing behaviors, right? So I I see a future where all the major financial incumbents, and you see this with Aspiration, eco-friendly bank, where it automatically, you know, tracks all of your spending right in your bank statement. You see what the associated footprints of each of those purchases are. And then at the end of the month, when you're paying off your credit card bill, there's a little call to action that's like, hey, um, your footprint was X, would you like to add $8 to your monthly bill or to this bill and offset your entire month's footprint? And so I'll pass the torch back to you. And if you've talked to Patch, um, I'd love to hear, you know, are they exploring something of this nature? But what is your take on integrating this type of information and then optionality, right? The, the, the ability to offset directly 
within your existing mobile banking experience? Absolutely. I love that idea for, for two reasons, right? The first is the ease of transacting. And, and you make a great point. We, we live in a world where, where things are easy, right? That's probably been one of the biggest trends of the last 20 years is consumer convenience. Things are easy. People and people have you know, had their expectations set by things like Amazon and great UIs. And there's been tons of companies that have made things pretty easy. And I think, no, so we have to make it easy. And so I, I love that it embeds it right in a workflow that you already have. The other reason I love that though, is what we talked about earlier, right? Like when someone tells me the average American has 16 tons of emissions, that doesn't really, that doesn't really connect to me. Like personally, that doesn't, it's not like someone has sent me a, a note that says you emitted 30 tons of carbon last year. What are you going to do about it? It's, a, it's an average. It's, it's a statistic. Who knows? Maybe I'm better. And, and so bringing it home to someone in a really personal way that says, no, this is you. This is not Joe down the street. This is you. I think mm-hmm. it is really powerful and, and really important. So yeah, That's- as I, I really like that idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you, did you have another a company I'll or say, two that you wanted to? Yeah. I'll say one more that I do. And also I want to mention, because I, I should have mentioned it earlier, Arcadia. One of the other cool things Arcadia Power does is they're launching this corporate program, basically, where they're trying, they are getting corporations to offer clean energy as a benefit. So if anyone listening is, really? is you know, an HR manager or a, an environmental group manager at a large company, you can talk to Arcadia and it can be part of your like benefits package, right? Hey, we provide clean energy for all of, especially with work from home. A lot of people, this is their office now. And so it's like providing clean energy for your office. So a cool program, anyone should feel free to, to reach out to Arcadia if they're interested in that. So now Wait, that I've okay. made the pitch for our own portfolio. Yeah, no, go ahead. Real quick, because that is also super fascinating. You spent a lot of time exploring this idea as well. And if you were to do an easy comp to medical benefits, right? You say, hey, this is the type of provider we're interested in. Then you click down. Here are the four plans that are available inside of this provider. And then you give employees the ability to choose the plan that serves kind of their lifestyle best and then also be to what extent you want to contribute to that plan. So I'd love, if you're aware of it, how exactly will the benefits workflow manifest? Will it just be one option, all in one option, or do you see it playing out like medical benefits where it's hyper personalized based on the employee and what the company opts into? Yeah, great question. I, I To start, it's definitely more standardized. The idea is keep it simple. We have one plan. Like this is, you get clean energy. There's probably room to expand that and not just in, in energy and in, in other programs, everything we've been talking about, whether it's transportation that you do for work or, or all this stuff. So there, there's definitely room to expand. Specifically, this program is starting out with simple one option. And then, like I said, there's room to grow from there, whether, whether it's within personal energy use or it's in other fields. Mm-hmm. Love it. All right. Sorry for cutting you off. <laughs> no, <laughs> please. The last one. <laughs> as, as it, Ed is clear, we can talk about this stuff all day. But the, the other one I was going to mention is any anyone who's read some of my blogs knows I'm a proponent of carbon capture and specifically industrial carbon capture, as opposed to I'm also excited about direct air capture, but it's a little further out. Industrial carbon capture is something that we should be doing more of today, in my opinion. And the reason is because Mm -hmm. it's pretty reasonably priced, especially given certain regulatory frameworks that exist out there. But anyway, all that to say, there's a company called Carbon Clean Solutions. 
that is is doing industrial carbon capture. They're trying to make it modular, make it easy. I think it's a good team. And I think a lot of the reason carbon capture, specifically at industrial facilities, hasn't fully taken off, two reasons. One being that despite the fact that it, it's, a, I think, a relatively efficient way to get rid of carbon, it still costs something. And someone's got to pay for that something. And we've, as we've talked about, uh, willingness to pay for these is, is, still a, is still a bit of a gap. But the other mm-hmm. reason is project risk, right? Think of if you run a, a cement factory, right? Do you want someone to come in and build a whole new plant? There's construction people, they're disrupting your flow, and these projects can take mm-hmm. years. And, and so what Ca- Carbon Clean is doing, which I think is, is smart, is they're trying to make it modular, make it turnkey, make it easy. So you can go in and say, with the lowest risk and the lowest disruption and the lowest time to install, we can deliver one of these projects. Interesting. Can for the layperson, can you define or just uh, hyper contextualize what exactly carbon capture is, and then how that company fits within that umbrella? Sure. Uh, great question. So carbon capture um, is an idea that basically says there's a lot of CO two in the air, and we should pull it out, and that would be a great way to reduce not just emissions, that reduces the actual CO2 in the air that's causing the problem. So that's the big idea, right? And there's a lot of companies that are working on pulling carbon out of, pulling CO2 specifically, out of, out of the atmosphere. They're called direct air capture companies, Global Thermostat, Climeworks, Carbon Engineering. Those are the big three. And it's really cool. It's an awesome idea. It's the backstop if nothing else works. So it's awesome that they're working about it, working at it. But today it's pretty expensive still, right? This is stuff that is in the neighborhood of hundreds of dollars a ton um, to do, whereas we talked about earlier, doing buying a forestry offset of carbon costs like three bucks a ton. So there's there's just a big gap, even if someone wants to buy an offset in the price. So that's one. Industrial carbon capture is basically, and by the way, this has been done for years. The US has been doing this since the 70s to help with oil extraction, ironically enough. But anyway, industrial carbon capture is basically the idea that says what's hard about pulling carbon out of the atmosphere is that the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is super low. It's four parts per million, or I might misquote that number. It's something very low. Where the concentration of CO2 is very high is coming out of industrial flue gas, basically, industrial smokestacks, right? There's a ton of CO2, 20% CO2, like 50% CO2. And so this is all just chemistry, but it's a lot easier to separate out CO2 at a lower cost per ton when there's just a ton more of it in the gas that you're, you are um, processing. So that's the idea of industrial carbon capture is just there's a lot of industrial facilities that emit a lot of CO2. These are some of the processes that are the toughest to decarbonize. It's, it's very tough to electrify certain parts of industry for a lot of reasons. They rely on high heat that's tough to replicate, et cetera. And so carbon capture, industrial carbon capture specifically, is a way to potentially reduce the carbon footprint of these industrial facilities, things like cement facilities, hydrogen production, ethanol, that sort of thing. And you capture the carbon, you stick it underground, sequester it where it stays for ideally thousands of years, they think. And and you can make net neutral industrial industrial processes. So wow. that's the idea of industrial carbon capture. Uh, and there's mostly in the space, it has been huge projects by oil majors, right? That's a legacy of the space because not to get all into it, but there's a thing called enhanced oil recovery where basically you squirt CO2 into the ground and it pushes oil up. So that's been where the technology was developed over the last 30 years. But now there's some startups, including you know Carbon Clean, Savante is another one, S-V-A-N-T-E, but that are starting to explore making this modular, making it easy. And 
able to deploy it in a way that's not a huge infrastructure project, but more of a product. I mm-hmm. think that's the goal. So anyway. All right. That is super compelling. And I did not know about the history around the product innovation. If you end up writing anything about that as well, that specifically, that's really interesting. Like the kind of the convergence of in many ways, the key culprits. (laughs) Yeah, it's Um, interesting. So here's a, a fun fact as well. So it's by far the biggest use of CO2 in the country. When you think about using CO2 in things, that's when you say carbon capture, utilization, and storage, the the U in the CCUS acronym that you'll see out there. We use something like 80 million tons of CO2 in, in certain processes a year in the US. Some of that is carbonating beverages, stuff like that. But the vast majority of it, like 90%, is in enhanced oil recovery. So call it 68 to 70 million tons in enhanced oil recovery. And the maddening thing about that is most of that CO2 is actually sourced naturally. So they pull it out of the ground somewhere over here, they send it over, and then they push it back into the ground and get oil out. So that, that, that doesn't do really anything uh, mm-hmm. but negative for the environment. But if you were to use instead captured carbon, which is, again, controversial, right, in the environmental community, because should you really be enabling this oil? There's 90% of CO2 that they could use in this process, and it's still net positives to what we're doing versus what Mm -hmm. we're doing today, which is not capturing the carbon and then pulling more CO2 out of the ground to do the process. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating life cycle there, but yeah. That is so interesting. All right. I have a couple fun questions before we part ways. The question is around macro trends. Putting on your investor hat, like you talked about when we kicked off, you're exploring these fundamentals and then you're looking out five, 10 years, what will absolutely be true? And you're in many ways incentivized to discover those things before other people do or on the contrary, disagree with a popular belief. And so my question for you is, what is one trend that we haven't discussed that you're bullish on and another trend that you think is massively overhyped? <laughs> Great question. So I'll say one trend that, that I'm super bullish on, and it is we invest, we've talked a lot about more traditional climate tech today, which is awesome. And, and we look at that all the time. The other thing we invest a lot in, though, is just industrial efficiency. So we come at this sustainability investing with the view that anything driving efficiency in industrial processes is clean tech in a way. Because solving you know, the problems of climate change and our ever-growing emissions is not something that is going to have one solution or two solutions or three solutions. It's going to have thousands of solutions that all kind of chip away at the problem. And industrial efficiency is very exciting. Specifically, there's so much opportunity for AI and ML in industrial processes. So the, the tech mm-hmm. continues to get better, whether it's in computer vision, natural language processing, even just time series analytics. And there's real ROI cases in industry. The challenges are all about getting adoption within industry, right? And one thing, we look at industrial companies all the time. And industrial companies can be more challenging to sell to for some of these technologies for a few reasons, for some very valid reasons. The first is that industry, any industry, has been 
endlessly optimized for a hundred years. Like the the story of manufacturing and industrial processes over the last hundred years is a story of incrementally doing things more and more efficiently and taking out more and more costs. If you're familiar with the Kaizen principle, right? If you've ever been in a warehouse or a factory, they literally have like tape on the floor that shows you where the trash can should be and tape on the floor that shows you Mm -hmm. how you should walk between two machines to minimize your time loss. These are the sort of things that these companies have been working on for, for years. And so they've endlessly optimized everything. And so when you're trying to sell a new product into these sorts of facilities, it's very hard to sell a product that blows that up, that says you're doing things poorly, you should do things differently, right? Because they're, they're number one, they're not doing things poorly. They've, in a lot of ways, are doing things very smartly. And number two, everything has just been, every little scrap of waste has been taken out. So if you punch a hole in one process, there's probably going to be downstream effects that blow things up that you don't anticipate. Mm-hmm. So the companies that can find good use cases, ROI, that fit into the existing workflows and optimize them, I think are going to be the ones that win. The other thing I'll say about that is we, especially as like investors and stuff and people who look at data all the time, we sometimes look at new products that say there's a product that provides, I, I, I don't know, it's a computer vision product that that provides data to an operator about what their remote assets are doing. So maybe it says, hey, look, this wind turbine still looking good or something like that. So they provide a bunch of data to the person. And one thing we've seen is as investors, we look at data and say, awesome, I love this data. Think of how much I could do with it if I was this operator. But an operator will look at that data and think, great, this makes my job harder. I'm already working a ton and now I'm expected to do something useful with this data. So that's the other thing I see in this market is companies that can bring not data, but actual things that make the person's job easier. So don't give Mm -hmm. them more work to do as your product. And like the analytics and stuff are great, but think about how they're going to be used and make sure you're reducing the work in the facility, not adding to the work and making them run all these new reports and and stuff, which is, I think, a simple thing, but something, especially coming from the tech community and and then going into industrials, often we think, let's just throw all this data because they're going to use it for such interesting things. It's like, they don't have time to use it for interesting things. That has to be on you as the company to find the interesting things and then make their lives easier. All that to say, there's a ton of opportunity here. It's the early days of penetration of these sorts of solutions, and and there's reasons for it, but this is going to happen. And there's a lot to be done here. Subscribe to that. A thousand percent. Awesome. Awesome. What about the uh, the contrary? Yeah. Are there any trends you find? Not going to let me off the the hook here. Look, (laughs) there's a ton of trends in the clean tech market that are important. One that's probably, in my opinion, a little overhyped is hydrogen. And this is one that, that we could well be proven wrong here. And the number one way that I'll be proven wrong and I'll be happy to be proven wrong here is if people believe in the hype enough to fund it to get to where the hype is justified. So like, for example, Europe is the best example. There's a good, there's a more than decent chance, right? That Europe just throws billions of dollars at this over the next five years and forces hydrogen to the point where it works. And then that would be great. But in terms of like where hydrogen is today, right? the, The noise versus the actual penetration, battery electric is just far more mature, right? There's Mm -hmm. something like 
there's no trucks made out of high or using hydrogen, right? <laughs> Not made out of hydrogen, using hydrogen <laughs> that, uh, that are on the roads today in the US in a commercial setting. There's something like 9,000 hydrogen fuel cell cars in the US. There's 1.6 million battery electric cars, and as an example. Even forklifts, which is like the hydrogen, there's lots of hydrogen forklifts, 35,000 in the US. There's 600,000 battery electric forklifts. All that to say is I, I think hydrogen has a place like potentially long haul trucking is interesting for hydrogen. There's some other areas, maybe some industrial high heat processes, but that could also just be natural gas with carbon capture. But anyway, a lot of hype and it's just not quite there yet. And maybe it'll get there, but, and I hope it does, but not yet. I don't know if anyone's told you this before, but you just sounded like a walking computer. Like you ripped <laughs> off those stats, <laughs> like nothing. Here's how I cheat at my job, which is, like I said earlier, the cool part of my job is I do a ton of research on things. So as an example, that hydrogen data, I did research on hydrogen at some point and I opened a deck. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, you can you take this part out so everyone remains <sighs> impressed. <laughs> Um, all right, Jake, we're, we're about to hit the one hour mark. So I want to uh, end with my favorite question of every, of every interview. And I'm going to let you take it one of two ways. So typically, I'll ask someone to explore their idea graveyard, right? It's this idea that they've been sitting on, maybe it's in their notes app or somewhere clocked away. And they'd love to work on it if they had the time to do, but at the moment is just rotting away in your idea graveyard. So I'll let you either answer that one or similarly, if you want to give us your hot take or request for startups, one or two things that you feel very bullish on that no one or very few people are working on. So I'll pass the torch back to you. Feel free to to rip on or riff on any of the above? Really interesting question. I'm, I'm not entirely sure which one I want. I'll go with maybe a request for startups. We can do the idea graveyard a, a different time. One thing, uh, and I'll go you know quick here since I, I do have to jump in two minutes. One thing I'm excited about is 5G. 5G is one of those things that is both overhyped, but I'm still excited about it. And the reason I'm excited about it, 5G, naturally, when you go online and look at 5G, most of the articles will be about how fast your phone's going to download things, which is great. And it makes sense that all the articles are about that because people want to read about their own, their own devices. But 5G is really more, I think it'll unlock more value in the, in the business space, specifically because 5G is written to allow IoT potentially to finally flourish. In a way, this could be the idea graveyard, right? IoT has been supposed <laughs> to take off for five years, 10 years. And, and people definitely find use cases. There are very successful IoT companies, but it hasn't quite hit its hype yet. And, and potentially 5G could be the, the way it does, because basically, the, not to get super technical, but the way 5G is written allows continuous low power connectivity for cellular devices. So a previously, right, there are two ways to connect to the, the cellular network, either continuously, and that uses a ton of power, or intermittently, but that hurts performance, right? So like as if I had a sensor that was doing whatever, maybe it's a smart city sensor, either it has to like ping the network and ask for access whenever it wants to send something, which if it needs to react quickly is tough, 
or it continuously pings the network, but it runs out of battery in a week. 5G kind of enables more of these low power sensors, continuous connectivity for all sorts of use cases, right? Throughout the smart city in non-sexy stuff like monitoring sewer performance and like all this stuff in business settings as well. That's not so much a, a request for startups because I think like some of these already exist and 5G might just be an accelerant, but there's something here that could be finally unlocked by 5G. So that's one other thing I'm excited about and maybe I'll just leave you with that. <laughs> I love it. Jake, before we part ways, are there any final call to actions, hiring needs from the firm, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. <laughs> Great question. No, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate the invite. I'm happy to come back anytime. I'll just say, look, my, my inbox is always open. I love talking to entrepreneurs about stuff. We invest typically series B or later, but even if you're earlier, if I can be helpful, just let me know. My opinion is like in these sorts of markets, the entrepreneurs that are trying to build things to solve these problems are the heroes. And if I can ever be helpful, just reach out. My email's on our website and on my LinkedIn and I'm always available. Love it. Jake, I'm going to add a link to your writing in the episode description, sure. um, we only harked on one in depth, but for everyone listening, it is, in, in my opinion, some of the best fundamental writing on these important topics and just getting a peek into what the future might look like. So, Jake, oh, again, thank way you. Way too for, nice, Peter. Way too nice, but I, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for me, uh, a little bit of your brain and nerding out with me, man. This was a ton of fun. A lot of fun. Anytime and uh, have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. You too, man. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rockstar founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and... Look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.